Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. I have to say about my experience throughout the arts and creative industries I've had the absolute joy and pleasure to be around some of the most community focused loving giving entrepreneurial folk that really build and support communities I used to volunteer for creative mornings Edinburgh I was a speaker coach I'm just like so amazed by particularly in Edinburgh but particularly in Scotland this whole sense of of collaboration over competition and how We support one another and that like mentoring relationship is strong everywhere. So definitely it's something that's been a big part of me, but I've been so grateful to be in a country and in a city and in an industry or across industries where that's really valued. We go in the sea and you have a sort of sister buddy. So you have someone to chat to on the way down. Maybe you're helping each other carry boards down and get to know that person a little bit and look out for each other in the surf as well and you know just making sure that each other's safety is okay and we actually really for beginners just go up to maybe like your waist depth so we're like really not out in the middle of the sea out of your depth or anything like that and if, if you're not doing well we've got loads of techniques like just tuning into your senses like just see noticing what you can really see and hear and smell and touch and if the anxiety comes up that you've maybe had in your life anyway you've got someone there to support you with that and literally helping you to work through what an what anxiety is in your body and letting it go into the sea in a safe place and then remembering these techniques when you're back in your own home or in your workplace or wherever it is and being able to use some of the breathing or some of the like letting go or tuning into your senses so surfing's a big part of it but the rest of it's like just a bit as big a part like learning how to look after your own mental health and physical health and doing that for yourself but also doing it in collaboration with other people and having that community to support you as well. I think one of the best things is as well is that it's a group of women that you know they come together not knowing one another and they are so open and honest and brave and people just are really really willing to share and express their feelings and emotions and I think that really brings everyone together and closes a group and then even just moving forward into the sea it's just beautiful and you just even the the groundswell team themselves like we're there we're joining in we're just a part of it as much as anyone else we're not leading we're just we're part of it um and uh, we're there to share our thoughts and feelings too which just makes I think the group stronger and a better place to be it's lovely yeah the answers are really within it's not about looking outside for the answers it's about looking within it feels I think that's what allowed me to carry on and, and pull the event off it's no matter what is going on outside you have to be so centered that that's your compass basically and you know you just have to trust that everything was sort of aligned to help that happen (laughs) but I'm always surprised as I go through yeah as I go through life how the answers are really within I did spend my 20s and early 30s most of my 30s looking outside for validation for for answers like everyone else you know was doing it better than me or with you know and I'm always surprised now then when I allow myself to look within for answers, how my successes, my achievements, my pain doesn't have to look like anyone else's. And the only 
answers to just own it and keep moving forward. And it doesn't, my past doesn't have to resemble anyone else's. It's hard to judge sometimes, you know, can I cover this story in an empathetic and respectful way, you know, while somebody's going through the ultimate of grief to showcase the atrocities that are taking place and not intrude on them too much. And some people welcome that and they really want you to showcase what's happening. And other people just do not want you there. And I think most of the time, the best form is just operating as a bit of a gray man where people don't even know that you're there. You know, you're just kind of in the shadows, just operating in a way, picking up what you can, but always being very, very alert to what's going on. So those stories always hit me quite hard. And I, I certainly always need a bit of time to decompress from them because they're very emotional. I mean, <laughs> if you talk to a bunch of actors as well before we go on stage, it's like, don't talk to me. What am I doing? I don't even know my line. I don't know my line. And then you get on and you're like, I've arrived. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so when someone sees that, it's hard for them to believe that you're almost like, you know, doing what you were doing just before you get on stage. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think that's a thing as well. I mean, we have social media, we have our other things. We don't see what goes on, the vulnerability before it. I think when you tell your story and your truth, that's enough. We can't criticize that in someone. We can't say, oh, that didn't happen because it's their story and their truth. I think because the theme was fearless, it, it was just perfect for my story about, you know, that vision of always wanting to to smash that stigma of mental health. And it's you know, you think all oh, lots of people are talking more openly about mental health now. Well, that's great. I've noticed a huge shift in the six years I've been sort of campaigning, but it still can be the hardest job in the world. <laughs> you know, there is still millions and millions of people that are afraid to talk out. And I thought I have to talk about that. I have to encourage more people to share. And, you know, this really, really came home to me far more recently, about 10 years ago when I was doing the eulogy at my mother's funeral. And my mother had slipped into Alzheimer's oh, about five, six years before she died. So we'd essentially lost her anyway. But fortunately, my niece had had the foresight to interview her before she slipped into that abyss of wow. Alzheimer's. And it was wonderful because I had so many rich stories to tell, so much lovely material that I hadn't known previously. Um, and when I shared it at the funeral, so many people came up afterwards and said to me, I wish I'd known that about your mum when she was alive. I'd love to have spoken to her about that. And I thought, why is it we, we hide our light under a bushel? We don't talk about ourselves, our experience. We're brought up to be very modest. And it it contains so much of the richness of each and every one of us. And so what I do with my work, which is very much around this becoming more significant, is getting people to look at themselves with fresh eyes, connect with that unique value, find the words and phrases to explain what they do and what they're all about, and then be able to connect with the right people who are going to help them grow, but also the people that they can help to evolve and grow. And, and that's really my life's work, Lisa. I'm very philosophical. I know that life goes on. You don't wallow. I loved my husband to bits. I was with him for 50 years. In fact, I was with him for more than 50 years. He was there for me. He was there to keep me grounded. And he was a brilliant dad and he was a brilliant grandfather. And I miss him like crazy, but I don't wallow. I'll talk to him every now and again. If something happens, I'll say, um, oh, there you go, Kenny, did you do that? You know, things like that. 
Well, it sounds to me you're living your life to honour the life that you had with him when he was there, when he was supporting you and all the things that you wanted to do and you you went off and did those things and he was his own person and you were your own person. And, I mean, he was was so well-loved. He was a great guy, by the way. I mean, he was... was Well, it'd have to be if he was married to you, Anna. Of course. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> yeah. So I was living with my foster parents, and it was the first movie they took me to see. Uh, we went to ET, and I came from this rough back. I came from Drumchapel. Now I'm living in Kelvin Sight. So at least yeah. the, the Glasgow listeners can understand that. Americans wouldn't understand it. Mm. But um, yeah, so moving in, I always tell them, I said, it's like growing up in Crenshaw and moving to Beverly Hills. <laughs> Got you. <laughs> right, right. I feel like the Fresh Prince of the West End. <laughs> so anyway, so we, we went and saw the movie. And yeah, like everybody, you're in tears, you're in awe. And when I saw them flying the bike out of here, I was just like, holy, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fly my bike out of here. I mean, when I was growing up in Glasgow, I thought like the outskirts of Glasgow, like I thought Irvine was another planet away. You know, I never imagined that. I mean, last year was my 30th trip around the world on a BMX, like that's where it's taking me. I didn't ride the BMX, was flying obviously. <laughs> I was in a plane, but um, but that's what ET did for me. It opened up the possibility that I could fly. For me, it's, it's two things. One connected to your good self, actually. You know me, <laughs> near dancer, but some of the really beautiful, beautiful stuff sorry, that we've done during the chaos is it gives people that are members of the club a chance to, like when we did Singing in the Rain, you know, people that aren't tap dancers to become tap dancers and people that, you know, aren't sort of graceful to feel a bit graceful sometimes. And I've really, really enjoyed doing that. And every year you think, you know, you'll maybe show us a dance move or something. And inside our heads are like, is that possible? Can we, can we all do that? Does that look good when we all do that? And it does. And it makes you feel as if, oh, I was quite elegant there for a second. That's quite nice. There's a quality I wouldn't have immediately associated with my good self. But it's, and I think that really does. And it kind of pushes you and it makes you feel really fit. So I think definitely for me, um, one of the best things about it is I, I like the singing and, and I like the acting and I think I'm, I'm kind of okay at them, but I really like the fact that sometimes at the end I think, oh, I felt a bit dancey there, and I love that. From very, when I was very young and I was going to be an actor, my serious plan of get your three C's at higher, because that's all you needed at the time, get out of school, go to college and maybe do like an NC or something, then go to drama school, and that was the plan. That was it. And then go and be like Robert De Niro. And it was all very clear. It was all very clear. So that's I decided. No, do you know what? I'm not going to. I'm not going to go to Knightswood, and uh, and I'm going to go and do that. And it's dead funny because I'm now friends with lots of people that would have been at Knightswood at the same time. In fact, Paul Corner, who I was talking about, he was sitting talking to me one night, and we hadn't clicked. We were the same two guys from when we were 16. And he said, "I was the first boy that got accepted to Knightswood." And I was like, "Really? Were you the only boy?" <laughs> he said, "Well, there was this other guy." Um, and then turns out I, for years uh, I had a really unfortunate nickname of the boy who never came. That's what they called me. <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, he's like, oh my Are you God. worried about that in modern studies with your I know, I know. Turns out those dancing, singing ones were the worst. But he was so like, you're the boy that never came. Like, yeah, yeah, that's me, that's me. It was an in service day and uh, I went on a workshop being run by a company called Tree of Knowledge and it was called Putting the Fun Back in the Staff Room and I thought this will be dreadful. Um, (laughs) I 
absolutely don't want it. I heard it was motivational and I was like, oh my God, I don't have time for something like this. Because by that point, I started to become one of them. And by them, I mean them who say things like, I've got better things to be doing with my time. But I went on it because uh, I had to and I loved it. Like I loved it. It was it was one of the best things I'd ever done. It was so funny. It was so uplifting. It was so challenging in all the right ways. It ruffled feathers, it pushed buttons. I laughed, I cried. We had a ball. And then um, this guy went away. It was a morning session. He went away at lunch. And we all sat in the staff room for that whole hour of lunch, just buzzing about what happened. And I just couldn't help but think, that's his job. He's basically taken my two passions, stand-up comedy uh, and teaching, and put them together. Now, they I said earlier, I think they're the same thing anyway, but instead of being in one classroom, he's taking this all round schools. And I just thought, I want I want a bit of that. So actually, I, him and I had been chatting during the break and, and he said, oh, if you ever think about leaving teaching, give me a shout. So the truth is, I quit my job that day. Do people make Glasgow if you're not from Glasgow? That was my biggest question in sort of, my office used to look out at the City of Glasgow College building. That realisation of... Is that a quite an insular statement or is that something that people who've just arrived here really feel? Yeah. And at the time I had no connections with any, I had no experience of the of refuge, working with refugees, of working with asylum seekers. I didn't know the difference. I didn't know any of the terminology, but I felt like I knew that Glasgow would want to welcome people if there were people here. <laughs> Little did I know I was biting off a rather large chunk. And social media did what social media does best. Do you know, I got, I started to ask people. I started to ask, so I asked a designer pal. I'd sort of drawn out the logo and I'd had the idea of the word. I'd bounced it off a few people very tentatively. It's horrible bringing an idea to somebody. I was terrified that someone was going to be like, that's so bloody stupid. Like what happens when you actually tell people? And it's nuts, right? Yeah. So I took it to a wonderful friend and, and someone who I'd worked with before, George Mackay, uh, a designer. And I took it to George because I'd done a piece of work with him in the past and said, look, this is what I'm thinking. Be honest with me. I can remember that just that feeling of validation of him sort of going, you're onto something. I think that's something I would bring up when people say that oh, fashion is just frivolous, it doesn't matter. Like I had a client who was a one-to-one wardrobe consultation client and she was actually recovering from breast cancer. And obviously me styling her, like that didn't save her life. The doctors did that. But she said to me that me dressing her was the first time she felt like herself since she'd had surgery. So will people think, oh, you're just popping a scarf on her outfit? I wasn't. I was helping her find herself again. And like that made me so emotional to think that I had somehow contributed to her recovery in a way that most people would would not value. But she found it so valuable. She still tells me how many compliments she gets when she puts her outfits together, that she wears them all the time. And she looked amazing. She was herself again. And she kept saying, one day you're going to play Hamlet. One day you're going to play Hamlet. And she kept saying this in class, but she said other things. And then, and then she went to my, my teacher. Uh, she was like, yeah, Tony's going to play Hamlet. And then my teacher went, oh, no, 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 no. You don't mean Tony, you mean Tommy. <laughs> my mate Tommy, because he would be fantastic. She was like, no, Tony. We were also doing another play and a fantastic uh, 
theatre critic called Mark Brown. I've got a lot to thank him for. Uh, he was uh, going down on the train with uh, a director who was about to direct uh, a fantastic play, The Royal Shakespeare Company, that I was in. And she was like, oh, do you know any Scottish actors? And he was like, well, yeah, I've just been working with a few. You should see Tony McGeever. So then I ended up getting an audition and then I got cast with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And the next day, the class went, you've got to go up and tell her that you've just been cast in the Royal Shakespeare Company. This is literally days, you know, within that week. It was as if she knew that I was going to get cast in the Royal Shakespeare Company. And so when we did a product trial and we took out reusable pads and we asked all the girls to try them, one of the teachers said to me, can I try them? And I was like, ah, that was a very good question that I didn't think of. Of course you're going to need them. If your daughter can't afford them, why wouldn't you be able to? But, oh, my God, it's not just every daughter we need here. It's every mum. It's every teacher. It's every woman in the, who works. Like, <laughs> where are we going to get these kind of products from? Which is what combined a strong sense of determination, a thing that I've always taken up my own clothes because I'm very small so I can sew and so I was something like oh I can I can kind of make this product a good bit of well we're losing people at 14 and this is ridiculous and so after I'd moaned to just about everybody about how stupid this problem was I was kind of like okay either I can try and fix it and then I can be like I agree the problem is really hard and it's unfixable I tried I accept that it's too difficult or I can be like ha there is some kind of solution and I will take no more of this and we chose option B. I'm not sure. <laughs> option B is a drastic, difficult option. But whenever we find a community that gets access to some form of product, it's like, this is worth it. You can make really cheap products and put them on a market that are safe to use and women can buy them. And then you know that they have them. I think just sticking with what we want to do and sticking with our kind of values is a constant struggle, especially in this you know, I never would have guessed that I would be entering the business world. I was not that type of person. I would assume when I was younger that a successful business person is super confident, slightly arrogant, and maybe male. That was probably was my perception when I was in high school. So kind of entering this world, talking about periods in this world, which is, you know, sometimes there's a lot of men in it. That's kind of an ongoing challenge and something that I've had to kind of tell myself and we tell ourselves a lot no we deserve to be in this space we should not underestimate our abilities we should not underestimate ourselves as business leaders our business owners you know we deserve to be here we know what we're talking about I did like a preliminary research about every person to see if they actually failed it was like a very obvious failure that I could talk about and whether all of the 21 people then had distinct lessons because there were some people where I'm like, mm, I think we have to change this because both the lessons that I'm deriving from the failures are quite similar or they're exactly yeah. So then I had to find other people who could offer different lessons. So that was like another research process to begin with. And then when the list was finalized, then I could start working on them one by one. And even then, once or twice, I'm like, oh, no, I should have done some more research in the beginning because, again, the lessons are coming out to be quite similar. So that was like another yeah, little heart attack problem, but, but thankfully solved through it. So, yeah, my parents asked me, they're like, oh, yeah, you should be pumping out these like nonfiction books. You've got to figure out it like one a year. And I'm like, no. Not <laughs> on your nail. It's too much work. <laughs> it is. It is a lot of work. It's, yeah. We have little crochet lace collars, you know, to put over dresses yeah. and things you know things that my great-grandparents you know made and made for each other we have 
uh, a lovely my great granda got uh, injured during the First World War and he made one of those satin heart pincushions. So we Aww. have that. Uh, you know, just these little little objects of fabric and textiles that have really sort of went on to inspire me because I think, you know, family and family relationships and nostalgia really inspire what I do. So a lot of the stuff I do is, you know, it's, it's ripped and it's shredded and it's these sort of, you know, broken mm. textures and things, but they're made out of like silks and things. It's sort of a, a notion of sort of like preciousness and these sort of like when you open, you know, a box and you pull out an old christening gown or something that belonged to your mum you know I'm trying to capture that in my work so that's a lot of what I focus on. Talking which is what we lead with as the men who but also listening practicing gratitude um, these are all habits if you don't practice them on a regular basis you will fall out of the habit especially when it comes to something that a lot of people find difficult talking about their feelings and emotions Um, so the great thing about the men who having the weekly session having dialogue between the participants throughout the week is you're practicing this habit and I personally find it so much easier to sit down and talk to almost anybody about how I'm feeling about anything at a given time whereas you know 12 months ago 24 months ago that was a struggle I had to I had to you know, swallow swallow a big frog in my throat to get off my chest what I wanted to get off. Um, so from that perspective, it's been it's been brilliant, and it's something that I think is a core part of what the men who's all about is that habitual practicing, um, talking, listening, and, and and reflecting gratitude. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've summed that up so well, John. I feel like I'm still I've still got a lot of learning to do. Like I I, I think I've improved a lot um, at sharing, but I think that. A quote that just came to my mind is uh, Neil Gaiman was talking about how to write novels and he's like, you never learn how to write novels. You only learn how to write the novel you're on. And I think in terms of articulating myself and in terms of like finding the right words for my emotions. And and I think one of the problems is each of our individual experience of our inner life is so different, vastly different than each other. In some ways, it's so specific that what the man who is allowing me is to form a language around how I identify how I'm feeling and it's, it's like you're it's like you're sketching out your own little scientific process of of how Joe works you know how how does how does his neurosis about this link to his behavior here etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> I think it was the, my first time of ever being in a crowd that size and really feeling that energy of that shared communal experience which you know in these current times might can't we can't quite imagine getting straight back to that just yet but and then hearing them play Screamadelica and it genuinely did like it blew my mind and it was just like I had a wee light bulb and I noticed all these people and I remember I noticed that they were all men as well and I was like "Mm." but all these people kind of standing at the side of the stage and they were all dressed in black and I could see some people humping some boxes and doing some other stuff but I didn't really know what they did but I could see that there was quite a lot of them and I could see the scale of the festival. Just seeing that and seeing all these people, although I didn't really know what they did, it just made me realise for the first time ever that actually events could be a thing and festivals could be a thing and you know, I had I had always bought the NME and I'd bought the Melody Maker and I'd looked so longingly at like the Glastonbury and Reading lineups, but I'd never occur- the thought had never occurred to me that that could actually be a job. What the Easy Orchestra taught me was uh, through this was the importance of melody. It was so much easier to cover a Beatles song than it was a Rihanna song. Why was that? Because when you strip it all down, 
the Beatles songs had beautiful melodies it, it, it yeah. relied less on production and noise mm-hmm. it, it relied on actual melody yeah. rhythm. I'm generalising not every song no, 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 of course great, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, right. but for the most part when you covered an old song it had this beautiful melody so then you could rearrange it to whatever you wanted to so when it came to uh, Cowboys and Africans it all started with melody you know I had to to do a melody and then because I arranged for the Easy Orchestra I arranged for the Federation as well then I knew how to put anything around a melody but the most important thing was to find that melody or that hook Mm. uh, and then it all stemmed from there you know so so clever it was really swollen and I was like it'll be fine I'll get through this and then I'll just ice it when I get home and things yeah the next day it turns out it was broken (laughs) You danced on a broken foot. She did 12 dances on a broken foot. We're not talking easy dances. Like, the Chili's show is an absolute shift. And she, yeah, by the end, I'm looking good, broken. It's bulging out of your shoe. Are you sure you want to do this? It was when we were actually packing up to go home. And it was when I couldn't get my foot in my trainer. And I thought, hmm, that's just not okay. So I got home and mom and dad, they're like, just like, you're being dramatic. It'll be fine. You'll get up in the morning. It'll be fine. Anyway, I get up in the morning. I actually had to go to work. It was Hogmanay. I couldn't put anything on my foot. So I actually went to work with nothing on my foot, no sock, nothing. I was in work for an hour and I'm like, I'm going to have to go to A&E. And I swear down, I told everyone, I was like, I didn't think it's broken, but there's something wrong. And I remember I phoned my mum from A&E and I was like, mum, it's broken. And she's like, Shut up. I just had this idea and I was sitting with my friend. We went for coffee and whatever. Um, and I said, I've got this crazy idea. And she's like, what's that? Like, oh, I was actually thinking about just doing this thing for I want to go and just like hug random people down in Broadway. And I was like, is this, is that, is that stupid? And she's like, she's like, no, like, like, let's do it. And I'm like, like now? She's like, I'll film it. I was like, cool, let's go. And we literally went from the coffee shop, went and wrote on a sign, went downtown. And, and that was pretty cool. And there were some people that were terrified terrified like I was like free hugging people like um I was like it's okay like and I was like give them a hug <laughs> some people would just walk by and just like they wanted to but they weren't sure and then other people like you could see people watching from the top of the street and they could see I'm walking down and I was like you're next <laughs> you're next when we did sing in the rain in Japan done it in, in Japan twice or three times now I think and they've got an amazing thing on day one when the show is about to open or do its first performance that day, that morning, I think it is, they get everybody involved in the production into the into the auditorium. And when I say everybody, I mean the cleaners in the theatre, the people that sell the tickets, the box office people, the everybody, the orchestra, the the wigs people, the makeup people, absolutely everybody is in the audience sitting there, and they do a speech and they have a kind of um, I don't know what you would call it, a kind of little kind of thing that they that, that you have to go up and bow to and each head of department goes up and they've got this little kind of um I, I can't even describe it it's a little thing that they've made a little kind of model thing and they have kind of blessing the theater and blessing the people and everybody has to stand up you look in the auditorium and there are well over 100 people Gosh. and then if you go and see the show there's a like, you see 20 people and you maybe hear the band and that's all you see. But there's well over 100 people there that are all integral part of putting this show on. And it's an amazing kind of coming together of, of the team that, that we need to do the show. It's brilliant. It really is. Yeah. 
you know, recently, like I was at Loch Lomond and we were just sitting, having a picnic and, you know, Nicole's walked out into the, the water. She's standing there. Um, and I was like, oh, like, how about you, like, walk in? It wouldn't be too cold. I need to, I, like, look, look, this would look good for the shot and stuff. And she's just kind of, like, walking it. And as she started walking it, like, the rain was coming in. And I was like, oh, quick, like, you know, before the rain comes, we need to, like, head. And as the rain passed, it was kind of, like, behind us at the sort of mountains. And then, obviously, like, because of the rain and the sun, it just, like, a perfect rainbow came across the top of her. And you're just like, so oh, cool. like, no way. And at that point, I was like running around frantically trying to change lens get the like right lens and like totally out of breath and like <laughs> captured like probably one of my favorite shots because it's just like that idea of like you know it's that aspect of that memory of being running around like a headless chicken and everything just kind of like falling into place it was like that idea of like the memory as well as like the the final image and like process of like getting to that shot such a like an amazing like moment I sort of felt like a bit of an island as like a, a queer folk musician. I didn't know there was a lot of them in the scene, but not only is there lots of them, but there's some of the absolute like best in the in the scene. So like it really hung on like the quality of the music and really hung on like and of the performers. Um, I think that was really instrumental in its success. Like I think if we'd come up with crap music, then it wouldn't have been as it wouldn't have been the success that it was. It would have been like a nice sure. thing for us to do. But like luckily what came out of it, like the music was just like it was just so great. And um it's just I've been really sort of proud to to be able to bring that into the trad scene and be able to talk about some issues that weren't talked about before. And there's people that have come and spoken to me that are, you know, straight cis people in the, uh, men and women in the in the scene that have sort of been like oh you've just you've opened my eyes and and which is just like the, the best yeah, thing yeah never a bad thing i think as well it's been interesting both rush has been quite instrumental in like how quickly the man in the mint stuff has moved as well i think like i think the visibility that that gave me and the opportunities that that have afford, that that afforded me like really pushed along Man of Minch as well. And- I find with modern music, a lot of it is more the production rather than the actual song. Yes. And I think because I'm coming from a place where I have minimal production, the song has to be really good and be able to stand up on its own. And I, I think like um, a lot of the gigs that I do, you know, I do just on my own or maybe if I'm lucky, I'll have two or three musicians with me. So I can't rely on the production at all. Um, so it's interesting that you say that because quite often I write a song and I think, nah, I'm not going to use that. And I think, God, if, if I did hear that and it was really well produced, it would be good. But it needs to stand on its own, I think, for me. Because okay. if I'm going to be standing on a stage, just me and a guitar or just me and a piano, I want it to be good every time, you know? Even when I walk on stage now in the Mirage, I'm walking out there in my head like I'm walking onto the stage of Wild Cabaret so that I just walk out with this this confidence. And it's like... It's that swagger conjures up the wrong image, but like it's that I'm walking out even the same pace of not too fast because if you go too fast, it's like you're trying too hard, too slow. It's like you don't really care enough. If anything, I'm more on the edge of walking out quite slow because it's like I want the audience to be like, wait, this is what? Oh, this is not. This is I need it to jar with their subconscious expectation, and by walking out just a little bit too slowly. And, you know, even learning from comedians, taking the mic out of the stand, putting the, the stand off to the side and just making people realize, because if I come out right away and just start, it's like, 
Well, the audience can just go, nope, and that's it. Whereas if I come out, I'm eating my dinner. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if I come out and I do all this stuff, and the audience are like, wait, he's he's here, but he's not even done. Is is this weird, messed up? Does he want to show us this? What is he going to do? Like it's making them wait for it almost, so that there's just that appreciation and attention. And it's so I learned that very much from from Wild Cabaret. It's been great. The film has as as you know really been a, a brilliant introduction mm. for us into you know giving these workshops um and uh yeah and we're really lucky that the groups we've worked with so far have been absolutely terrific the students have been brilliant um you know they've embraced the ideas as you know yourself there's some people that would have done a little bit of acting outside and they'd be a bit more comfortable with it most people have never done anything like this and you when you think if you're going into schools which tends to be a setting where where people are worried about what their peers think and they're you know very self-conscious typically that you know the, everyone we've worked with has just jumped into the deep end with this and and it's been brilliant i mean there was even a day where they had a SWAT team <laughs> extras uh, they came hurtling around the corner and get to the ground and start shooting blanks at us <laughs> which is so loud in a city it's literally like ricocheting off buildings he's not and uh it was really funny though because we're meant to be in philadelphia because it's apparently glasgow looks like philadelphia and <laughs> apparently it's cheaper to <laughs> shut down the whole city center of glasgow than it is right? to pretend <laughs> to anyway to film in philadelphia so we're running at this swat team with there's zombies behind us everyone's like move 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 and there's this one wee guy going, out the road! <laughs> this wee extra, he's like the SWAT, clearly forgot he's meant to be in Philadelphia. Brilliant. Get down, move, get out of the way! Out the road, pal, gotta get a wee shot at that zombie! I remember, um, since I've been shown around, and you go through the dining room, and then there was a, the, the Oscars and the BAFTAs on the wall and uh, on the shelf, and then there's all these famous paintings on the wall... And then I was going out the main door where I was being shown so that we'd see where we'd bring our equipment in. And suddenly Sugar, Elizabeth's dog, um, appeared. And I thought, if, if um, the dog's here, then uh, Elizabeth Taylor must be nearby. And, and then suddenly Elizabeth Taylor appears in this long nightdress. Oh, my word. And um, I was introduced to her. And uh, I went, Dame Elizabeth, it's known to meet you. And obviously no one had said, had called her Dame before because, you know, it only just happened quite recently. And she almost giggled and she took my hand and, you know, and we had a very brief chat. And then as I was standing by the door, the, the front door opened, kind of pushing me out of the way, and in walks Rod Steiger. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, this is just very surreal. And I remember getting in the car pulling out of our driveway and there's the gates closed, just pulling over to the side of the road saying, this is not, not normal for, you know, <laughs> totally. for someone from a mining village in South Ayrshire. That's probably the most pivotal moment in my career was the four years of not working because I'll never forget it because the Commonwealth Games came to Glasgow that year. It was 2014. I had junior 2010, yeah, so that was four years of not working and I thought something big is happening in Glasgow there's loads of stuff going to be here there's people going to be here I need to be part of this so I hired my own crew two guys I know a sound man and a cameraman and I went let's just go out and shoot stuff and from that footage I 
put a show reel together because everything I'd done previous was kind of kids' telly, so it, it had aged and it wasn't really usable anymore. So I needed new up to date stuff, and that became my new show reel. That stuff that I just went out and shot myself with no director, just made up the content myself, and that's what got me on the one show. So we do it all, we do ballet boys, we do everything, and it was just like we had to sing, cut. German cut, dance cut, there's so many cuts, you know. But then it comes to the end, and they're like, Stephen, can you do your turns in second for us? And I love turns in second. Like, it was always something that I, I love turning, you know, it's, it's such a thing that I've always loved to do. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did it, and she was like, oh, very nice, very nice. And I was like, thank you. And then um, I think it came to the end, and I said, she said, who can tumble? And I said, oh, I, I can't tumble, sorry. And she said, oh, it's fine, Mr. Mistopheles doesn't tumble anyway. And then I was like, Oh, and I was I didn't, still I didn't want to get my hopes up. But I thought, okay, so I'm actually going for Mr. Mustafa. I thought I was going for like something else. Uh-huh. So then, yeah, and then I got 15 minutes out of the audition, and um, I got a call from my agent, and I got the job. <laughs> that is mental. Yeah, but my whole point with Jesus, well, my version of Jesus, is that the intention isn't to be offensive. It's not to kind of laugh at people who, you know, worship or believe in, in this character. That was never the intention. And anybody who actually sees the show will confirm that. They go, it's so joyous, but it's so considered. It's so, um, and yeah, everything that I've done is based on a lot of research. I just thought, you know, if this man was around today, what would he be like? And as soon as I kind of got that thought in my head, just this whole flurry of ideas came towards me and then opportunities. And so I was like, right, I'm going to become Jesus reimagined as a fitness and lifestyle guru, stroke influencer, all these things, because that's, that is kind of what he would be now. So I had this incredible year with, I had so many new friends. I loved I had different work I was doing and I had the chance we were touring for Romeo and Juliet and I had an incredible opportunity to be Juliet for the full year so that was really really incredible for me so not only I had the chance to develop my ballet but I also had to learn how to act because it's it's a really challenging ballet to do especially that I'm straight out of school give me a chance let me do something smaller first and I'll build up to it you know but I went straight into it <laughs> I love that but you just totally embrace every challenge it sounds like you're like okay that's fine I'll just give it a go yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly it's a bit like that I think I've kind of found this out over the past couple of months like how I've been working right now I would describe my work as just a space for positive optimistic work whether that's to do with empowerment or just turning something that's quite mundane into an image that you look at and you're excited by or just like brightens up your day a wee bit that's kind of what I want to create with my work I just want it to be a nice space that people enjoy and it doesn't have to be superficial as being that's a pretty picture there's usually something about like obviously a lot of female empowerment and diversity and that's something that I've tried to work on over these past few months is just how can I use creating a nice image that people want to look at and want to share and actually create a message behind it. That's how I describe my work. It's happy and colourful, positive, but there's a substance to it. Mm. It was one day, a guy stayed through the wall for them, a guy called Geratoy, he was a pal of mine, only kids, and there were fields behind his house. Mm-hmm. So we were coming down from Kerfin, for this, the swing park in Kerfin, crossing the railway, and we seen Tom McGuigan coming out his back door and they threw a guitar onto the field. 
we don't know what it was damaged or whatever. Right. But the two of you seen it, well, nobody else there. And the two is ran. <laughs> no chance of catching me. Never in a million years. I ran right by him and I got the guitar. There were no strings on it and I took it home and uh, your uncle Latty was going me around to Rosemary. He took it and gave me it back with strings and a bridge. I'd never known it. That was my first guitar. Gosh. I found it in a field. Learned the hard way, you know, because I've not been very good. I, you know, I don't, I don't rate myself. Sometimes I feel like I'm a bit of an imposter of the things I do. But I, I, I have learned that, you know, if I, if I, if I can push myself, that I know that, you know, I'll be able to do more, and I, I won't feel as fearful the next time. You know, yeah. and and that makes it makes a, a, a massive difference to me. And I think with mountain biking as well. If you can push yourself, you know, trying things out there on a trail that you've never done before and, you know, facing obstacles and rocky features and steep descents, then think about how that makes you feel as a, as a human being and being able to go, well, if I've done that, I could conquer anything in life, mm. you know, because you've, you've conquered something in your head, of a thing that you can't do, but you actually can do it. I think a lot of us worry too much about other people's opinions. That we think I'm going to put that out there. Oh, what if what if so and so or or we Mary or that they think that's silly and they, you know I've got to the point of I do what I do and I'll put it out there. And if I'm hanging off a tree pulling pull ups out on the rings in my my garden beside the rope swing, that's what I'm doing. But it's amazing that the people that I don't know that think where'd you get the rings? How many did you do? And all these messages start coming in. You think oh. That, that was good for somebody. Somebody got something out of that. The people that you've maybe known forever or people that you, you worried about, think, oh, they'll think that's stupid. or something. They never get in touch. They never speak to you. So your own mind can play real games against yourself. And I think that's something that holds a lot of people back. I've been one for just, as I say, trying. I've maybe failed or something's sort of mo- momentum's gathered. But a lot of people will not even try because they worry about what other people think. So like towards the end, the last week to 10 days, you know, sur- surfing down these huge, one of you will kind of be at the oars. You don't really need two people at the oars. And then you kind of, you get over the top and sometimes the wave will crash at the, at exactly the right time. And you, it's like, you're, you're on this kind of surfing board and it becomes almost like a, like a video game. You're kind of yes. surfing down. I think we clocked about 18 knots. So it's, it's really fun. Really, really fun. It sounds terrifying, but after so <laughs> long, like, yeah. it becomes very normal. So. And then there were there was wildlife. Yeah, the what I mean, of course, the wildlife is incredible. It's kind of spread out. It's 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 not kind yeah. of wildlife every day. It's but I think that makes it even more special. So you have yeah. sort of days where you see absolutely nothing. It's just blue as far as the eye can see, and you, it's it's weird. You're in it's like you're in this state of limbo. Um, you don't know if you're going if you're going upstream or downstream or. It's it's bizarre and and uh, it almost like you're from a, out of a scene in, in Inception or something. Then a pod of dolphins will appear and and jump with the boat for you for, for half an hour, or, or you'll see a, a whale crashing out the water. It's yeah, amazing. And there's flying fish. Just flying fish are everywhere. You do see them every day, they're, and they almost become a bit intense wow. because they're they're flying off the boat and they're landing on deck. We actually had a game where we'd split the de- the deck up into thirds. And if you if a flying fish landed on your third, you get a point. And uh, I think the winner the winner got like a third of a Snickers or something. 
I'm still auditioning. I'm still getting to all the classes I can to train. I'm like, right, something's got to give here because it's just getting too hard. I'd literally, it started raining. I was walking back Leicester Square, headshot in hand, all my bags. I was phoning my mum. I was in tears. I was like, mum, I'm coming home. This is a nightmare. I was like, I'm not getting anything. That's the last edition. I'm going to get told no. Literally had plans to come home that weekend. Um, and I came home to my flat in London. Literally five minutes after walking in the door, I get a phone call. It's the producer from Living TV. She calls me. She says, Pamela, we're calling you with some news and we would love to offer you a spot on the show. You made it. And I was like, wait, who, me? What? You know, I literally started crying. I was sobbing my heart out to this producer on the phone. I was like, I was literally about to move home. I was like, I was literally about to give up and you've literally changed the course of things for me. Thanks so much. Yeah, she's like, no, we loved you. She's like, sorry, we couldn't get you on the show the first time round. We want to get you on this time and we'll be in touch with all the details. And then the following week, I'd ended up at the ITV studios for... Uh, the introduction with all the other contestants and from there I went on this journey from, from, from this dance reality show. That's actually been one thing that's been really interesting over the lockdown and it's kept me so busy is cards like um, when this all started kicking off I think it was before just before Mother's Day so I was like I can write your card for you and send it direct to your mum so that you don't have to go out or you know because lockdown was happening and then from that I made all these lockdown cards taking the mic so there was like a pasta card and toilet roll card and stuff like that and um but it was so nice I was like I'll write your messages in for you and just pop them there's a post box outside my flat so I can just stick stamps on them and send them for people and everyone was sending each other like really sweet messages like you know really miss you don't know when I'll see you oh and it, it was nice that people reverted back to feeling they had to send this physical thing because like they didn't know really when they might see them again. And it was also like my therapy. Like it got me through the start of lockdown. So I was just writing lots of lovely messages. People are cute. I think there's always one that stands out for me. The first time I ever worked Tea in the Park, I think it was like 2004. And I was on site and my boss at the time had said to me, right, go and come up on the main stage and and I'll show you. Like we can look at the audience and stuff. And I, I was a bit like, oh, right, great. I'm not really that fussed about it. And we walked up. And do you know that feeling where you're like walking up behind the scrims, so like in front of the speakers, so you mm-hmm. could just kind of see a little bit motlin of people. And Coldplay were on. And I remember we stood, and she just said, "Look, come, come round here and like dip your head round here." Mm-hmm. And I looked around the corner, and it was just like a sea of people. And I've never felt an emotion like that. Do you know where you are not in control and you don't know why you're emotional? And I was just so, so emotional because I've never seen that before. Uh And to this day, if I have a crappy day, I would go up on the stage and look out and be like, yeah, this this is still worth it. You know, because it's just like those people are having an amazing time and you're a small part of that. And that's a really cool thing to do. There's definitely a mix of reactions because the thing is, some people just don't know what it is or don't understand it. And so they immediately, I don't know, feel defensive or, or want to, I don't know, they, they just don't understand it. So they get scared and are mm-hmm. and, and just decide to think, oh, it must be a bad thing because I don't know what it is. So definitely there, there are people who come past and say, oh, wow, that's so impressive. Or sometimes you get much older people who are saying, oh, if I was 50 years younger, I would be joining in. <laughs> and like, you can, come on, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you definitely get some super nice comments or, or sometimes people are actually so interested in it that 
they're asking about opportunities and you can point them to the either the university or or the access parkour classes or the regular Edinburgh jams. But yeah, definitely sometimes there are people who sometimes sometimes they're quite rude to you or sometimes they just I don't know, one time uh, my friend was balancing on a rail, literally like not doing anything, just standing there. Someone went past and I can't remember what they said, but they were just like, what like what are you doing? Or are they saying like, oh, you're being so childish or something? It's like, what? Ah. It's really strange reactions, but I think it's just because they don't understand it. After my amputation, I just felt like I was saying yes to everything. Like, and because <laughs> <laughs> um, before I was... I was very restricted to to swimming. I couldn't really do an awful lot outside of swimming. And I think it was literally about two weeks after my amputation, Cor, the founder of Find Your Feet, she she spoke to me at, in West Mark in, in Glasgow. I was there for physio. And she said, right, Hope, we're going to Dubai in December um, and we want you to come with us. And I said, all right, yeah, sure. Like, what are you doing in Dubai? And she was like, oh, it's a, a cycling challenge. And I said, well, I've never really been able to cycle. Um, And she said, don't worry, Hope, it's going to be totally flat. You'll be fine. I'm going to do it as well. And I was sort of like, right, well, if she's going to do it without any hands and without any feet, I can do it with one leg. And I sort of said to her, I was like, I don't really know how to cycle, but I'm up for challenge, so just sign me up. So I literally went to Dubai after being on a bike once, and it was amazing. I have always been a creative person. I've always been a bit of a a jack of all trades, you know, in design and, and writing and drawing and art and cutting things up. And, you know, when I found this kind of uh, community on Instagram, that these are the people that we should be putting in front of our young people. You know, these these people have like aspirations and they've, they're driven and they're they're passion led and they're living a life that they want to live and you know sure it's not easy but it's not always about being the richest you know the richest person at the school reunion it's about being the happiest and I I feel like that was a, a huge thing for me it's always been a huge thing for me you know like I just all I want in my life is like balance and the ability to do what I love so we are YWCA Scotland dash the Young Women's Movement. And the Young Women's Movement part was, again, to kind of emphasize that, you know, we are proud of our roots as YWCA movement, but we moved away from that relig- religion-based model. As I said, like, especially in Glasgow, like we work with women from so many diverse backgrounds and we didn't want them not to be able to access our services or not think that our programs are actually for them because of the association that maybe they're bringing from their home country, thinking, okay, YWCA is only for Christian women, and I'm a Muslim woman, this is definitely not for me, because that's that's not how, how we do our work. I think as well it was keeping the kind of YWCA element, although as Patricia has just said, it's not the religious element that's there, it's kind of a nod to the past of all the incredible work that all the incredible women who've ever worked for the organisation have done. Um, so it was kind of, quite rightly, we want to keep a hold of that and recognise that, but also take the organisation forward um, in a way that reflects the women we work with. I was just doing a virtual symposium there and um, it was celebrating the 40th anniversary of the album Dirty Mind and the 30th anniversary of Gafriti Bridge. And... I'm always very invested in the visuals and the costumes and the the kind of cultural significance of what's going on. Mm. 
but there's people that are you know like musicologists and can tell you like you know like what was going on at the very moment he was recording and the kind of pivotal techniques that he was using and all that and it's just mind-blowing like when you like fly on the wall stuff yeah like and I feel like when you when you're a Prince fan and when you're really you're when you're really into Prince I feel like you get like a proper education because I've learned a lot about black history um through listening uh with Prince Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot about um the use of the internet as a musician um because he was really pioneering he was like doing it very 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 early on in the 1990s um he was one of the first people to do it if not the first probably so yeah like i feel like i get a proper education as being a <laughs> being a prince a prince fan the ultimate form of expression like the idea that you can take ideas from other cultures from other movements you put the b-boy essence onto it and it's a completely different thing. Like for me to be able to conceptualize that and maybe took a couple of years or actually no, like even longer, like five, six, seven, eight, nine years. But the idea that you're inspired by everything around you, that the range of movements that you have are almost uh, limitless. I mean, there are people this year, they're still innovating. They're, they're taking moves to the next level, even though it's not only about the moves. But still, you know that there is like a, a upward movement in terms of like what can be um, accomplished. I think it's just like one of the best things that you can do, that you can immerse yourself in. I've really had to lean on them a lot as a director to mm-hmm. create this material in isolation. And I think the quality of work that they've brought back has just been extraordinary. It really has. They're, they're really incredible artists. And I feel like I've really watched them grow, all of them grow and flourish as artists through this whole process. And a lot of them have spoken about how when they came into this production, they came in as an actor um, primarily, you know, and hadn't really considered doing other things within theatre. And now they, you know, they've all become writers, directors, dramaturgs designers they're all kind of operating the tech themselves through zoom they've all become much more rounded theater makers i think and i really hope that going forward they have the toolkit to be able to just go and make their own zoom show because you know i think sadly we're not going to get back into theaters for a little while so mm-hmm. have for, so for them to be equipped in order to keep making work that's been such an important part i think of as my, you know in my role as director and facilitator on this project Again, I can't praise the young, the young, young people, the young artists enough um, for their resilience, really. And that's that's the words they've just got through it. And you know, everyone under lockdown is facing challenges, whatever that may be. And the fact I think that we have this community that do meet once a week, and they also you know meet at different points through the week with Mel or on their own, as Mel said for rehearsals and production meetings and stuff. So it's something for them to continue to engage with. I think um, looking beyond the show itself, there's thoughts around right. Well the responsibility not to just drop them when the show finishes it's like there needs to be a continuation there needs to be something that they can still engage with after having all these weekly sessions with us um, or with Mel particularly and then for there to be nothing I think that's potentially damaging to, to, to the creative community that we've created obviously at some point everyone finishes a show and there's post-show blues and all the rest of it but I think there's there's a whole other body of work to be done around um, the kind of exit strategies that we have to put in place now around digital practice. They just filtered into the the poetry because uh, after each bad date I was like well, I'll write this down and then and then it became I realized I actually had quite a lot and then it became a sort of book <laughs> 
dinner with Superman. Yeah, so it's a bit of kind of everything. It's um, yeah, there's a series of bad dates in it, um, and it's a, I suppose it's about the search for the the kind of ideal man mm. who doesn't at the end probably doesn't really exist. But uh, so I go through some fictional ones as well. Mister Rochester's in there, and then end up with a kind of um, compromise. <laughs> so it takes you on a bit of a story it's got a bit of a narrative in it so it, it begins with a breakup which is the the spider-man that's they're all true stories um a guy that took his jumper off and had this massive tarantula on his t-shirt and of course I, I hate spiders so much that I just screamed and it was so lifelike I thought it was then a sign typical English teacher response I was like it's a symbol that's it I always think happy with him it came out of the blue for me, to be honest. Um, and I was off work for about six months. And then obviously like Scotland, Glasgow, the industry is so small, as we said at the start, you know, we, we know so many kind of mutual people. And so I think the word had got back to the newspapers that, that I had cancer. So when I returned to work, um, I think it was the Daily Record and Sunday Meal had got in touch asking if they could do a story on it. And I spoke to well, my now husband and my mum and dad and stuff and thought, well, well, why not? Because um, I think when you hear the word cancer, and certainly back 11 years ago, you just, I thought my life was going to be over. I thought that was it. And not everybody's lucky, but there are so many advances in treatment now. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be a death sentence, which I thought it was going to be at the start. So I think that was really important for me to to be able to use whatever tiny public platform that I had to be able to show people that actually, you know, you know what, if you're diagnosed with cancer, if you, certainly if you're diagnosed with le uh, leukaemia, there are many options out there and life isn't necessarily over. So kind of took the initial plunge of speaking about it and then I've never shut up about it since. <laughs> we decided to start a like, high school band in like first or second year. Yes, done that. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to play lead guitar, uh, obviously, everyone did, but I couldn't because I sucked. I was really bad. <laughs> and uh, I was like, right, well, I'm going to try and write a song. Uh, but I started, like everyone did, you know, being stupid, like rhyming, saying silly things because you're too embarrassed to say something real or you don't really have mm -hmm. anything real to say, maybe, is more important because you're young. <laughs> so I'm writing these rhymes and I'm making people laugh, but I realised that I could get an emotion out of people through a song. It wasn't the emotion I would intend, which is maybe like, like sadness or happiness mm. or understanding, but I was making people laugh with words. Yeah, you made them feel something. Yeah, and so I was like, okay. And then they were, they were like, right, I think because you're writing these things, you should sing, and I couldn't sing. And then I was like, let's draw straws, and I drew the short straw. Like, nah, you're the singer in the band. <laughs> actual and, straws. Yeah, actual straws. It's, <laughs> people listening to us are like either outraged by the use of plastic <laughs> straws or don't know what a straw is. <laughs> I'm not judging you at all. It was a time. <laughs> yeah, back when plastic straws were acceptable. So yeah, it was about, gosh, 12 years ago and I was an unemployed actress and I was working as a receptionist in like a recruitment agency or something, like properly random. And this deaf person came in and this deaf person like changed my life in that moment, right there and then, because she was talk trying to communicate with me and I was trying to communicate with her and I was like as a performer as an actor my job is to communicate right I tell stories I communicate with an audience live theater is all about the giving and the you know the toing and froing of that conversation right and here I was just like this communication breakdown 
you know, we ended up doing bits of gesture and writing things down and, and actually we got there and it was a really beautiful moment. But I wonder, I always wonder if that woman realises what an impact she had on my life because literally, cheerio, bye-bye now, she left and I went online because I hardly had anything to do in that job either. So I went, I went online and just looked at, you know, British Sign Language courses, Glasgow. And I, next thing I knew, I was signed up to a level one course at Annie's Line College, one evening in a week. And, and I went. And That's amazing. And that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First time around gigging, we go to a sound check and the four bands that were playing that night would be sat opposite sides of the room. You'd be eyeballing each other at sound check to see who was going to be the best on the night. And it's like, there's such a weird mentality. Like, why are we not just putting on an amazing show for everyone that's going to be here tonight? And I've definitely found that in the songwriting community, though, now is like, everyone is such advocates of each other. And it's so lovely to see. And it is that way of like, if everyone is lifting each other up, then everyone is going to rise with it. You know, like it doesn't just because you're all songwriters doesn't mean that you're all trying to fight for the same space because we're because we're songwriters we're all actually in different worlds we're all creating things from our own perception of the world with our own perception of a style you know a lot of people find it really hard now to set themselves in a box of genre because it's like it comes from all over the place like we were saying earlier you know like but I think that support of like oh we could jam we could like play this oh if we do a show together then you could play do backing vocals and I'll do piano or you know and it's like really playing with that idea and it's been amazing actually my priority became kind of feeling the pulse of the local community getting to know the locals getting to know the language I was the kind of smiling soldier and they they absolutely loved my name because uh it's Scott and kind of in Pashtun is sweet and Mina is love Right, so I was known as Sweet Love in Pashtun. Oh my God! So the oh children God. would be chasing me down the street, shouting "Scott Mina, Scott Mina!" <laughs> so, uh, always, which, which always cracked a laugh, and it was nice that, and actually, in a kind of another way, like the more the local community get to know you, they get to know your name, they get to care about you, the more likely they're going to be to tell you if someone came and planted a device on an alleyway that night or something. So you know, the community started to kind of look out for us. If we ever did get in a firefight or in a bit of trouble, normally we would come back to our checkpoint and find members of the community hanging around to make sure that we were okay. And they would often give us bread that they'd made. And these amazing people who had very little to give themselves went to great lengths to, to give and to protect us. Um, so it, was, it was a really um, kind of really special time in my life. And, I think to experience that at 21 years old was a real privilege. From there as well, it's led down to other things. I photographed bands like uh, the Charlatans, Public Enemy, um, Kiefer Sutherland from 24 was playing in Glasgow and oh. was photographing him. Um, and Johnny Marr from The Smiths. Um, Johnny, Johnny saw a photo of mine online that I'd uh, done at a gig and he got in touch because he does all his own socials. He got in touch and asked if he could use one of the photos for um, promotion and I was like aye okay and it was the obvious chat back and forward was there any money involved in it and cut a long story short it was used at the Teenage Cancer Trust gig at the Royal Albert Hall and it was him and Paul Weller wow. and w- when I get the thing through and it was like Paul Weller with special guest Johnny Marr and I'm looking at it and I'm going that's my photo man that's my photo they're using at the Royal Albert Hall and I was like so uh, cool thing and then as a result of that I was invited to meet him and I met him backstage at um, the Barrowlands um, not last year, the year before. 
and he knew who, he knew who I was, and he was Alison and I were there at the gig, and he was like, "Oh, Murray, how you doing?" And he was chatting about the photo, and he's like, "You know, I was showing it to Paul that night," and I was like, "Aye, that's Paul Weller he's talking about," and we were talking about it, and Roger came up, and I was like, "Roger," and he's like, "You know, Roger Daltrey," and I was like. I'll stop you there, Johnny. You, Roger Daltrey and Paul Weller are standing talking about my photo. And he was like, yeah, man, yeah. And I'm like, uh, Alison's, Alison's like, Johnny, please shut up. His head's, his head's big enough already. <laughs> so, yeah, Glasgow Can is a network organisation based in the city centre. And it has a membership of close to 300 organisations and freelance creative practitioners but it's free to join which is great but you have to have a participatory arts practice or an interest in developing a participatory arts practice so as far as I'm aware we um, are one of the only networks in Scotland of which there are many as you can imagine who focus specifically on participatory arts and the sort of professional development of it as a sector as well as being a support agency for its members so that's my elevator pitch that was spot on perfect (laughs) the song that i would pick that i've had to only hear it for the rest of my life because it's so related to my goal of winning the tour de france is don't stop believing by journey and the reason why is that you know every time every day when i listen to that song i visualize this so intensely right and this is actually going to happen it's going to be such a beautiful moment when I win the Tour de France, this is what's going to happen, right? I'm going to win it. They're going to fly me back from Paris to Edinburgh Airport. It's going to be in a plane, probably chartered by Nike. And I'm going to arrive at the airport. I'm going to walk off the plane. There will be, you know, tens of thousands of people there to arrive me back. The first Scottish one of the Tour. I'm going to be walking through the airport, you know, through the baggage and all that. And then get to the bit where it's like the arrivals. And that song's obviously going to be playing the whole time. And then just as the chorus kicks into that, you know, don't stop believing. That's just when I walk through the doors in that yellow jersey. First Scottish one of the Tour de France. And then the airport will be absolutely packed. There'll be Scotland flags everywhere. I'll be singing Don't Stop Believing. Everybody will be singing it. And that is the song for me. And that is a song for my goal. And that is a song for my life. And everybody really seemed to love it. And it got really good reviews. Um, I I was blown away um, by the by the reviews. And then it sort of started to sell out. I mean, it was only in a tiny little 50 seater because my first time um, doing the fringe. And uh, uh, yeah, and it, it just kind of went somewhere. And so that made me feel braver. I then took it on tour. And the thing that everybody spoke to me about afterwards when they came up was the IVF story that was the thing that people wanted to talk to me about so lots of people were coming up and saying that uh, they had had the same experience or they were through that experience and they'd either worked or it hadn't worked and it really made me feel because I had kept all that very private from everybody else you know it was weird because I was talking about it on stage and for a lot of family and friends that was the first time that they had heard any of this they just I think assumed that I didn't want kids it wasn't something I'd talked about before so suddenly I felt like I was part of something but once you kind of learn battling with those nerves and dealing with it it gets easier so I think um, obviously my first kind of presenting things I'd be really really nervous like not so much if it was pre-recorded or whatever but like red carpets and stuff I'd be really really nervous whereas now I can control I still get nervous and I think it's normal to get nervous and to get that adrenaline rush but 
I have a way of controlling it now, and I know that it's going to be fine, and I know that I'll worry about something, I'll think, oh, I hope this interview goes well. But I know that I've done it a million times before, so I know that it'll be fine. So you, you get into that process of learning to control your nerves, and the yeah. only way to do that is by doing it. You don't learn that overnight. So true. And sometimes, if I'm doing an interview and I think, this is pre-recorded, I've sang in front of 3,000 people at the Royal Concert Hall live. What am I worried about? I've done live performances. <laughs> like, why am I worried about talking to somebody? Like, this is stupid. And, and it, it appealed to me. And I think that once I, I found theater and children's theater and my poor mom and dad not knowing what the heck to do with me um, <laughs> would be it, it kept me busy. And I got involved and, and somehow somebody's mom gave me the makeup and we were doing some <laughs> some play where it's always children in plays that they shouldn't be, that they're far too young to play. Yes. And. So it was an Avon kit and we did that. And I love the idea of doing costumes, but of course I didn't really, I didn't know how to proceed. I mean, my mom was a nurse, my father was a T. I had no showbiz connection. And I think makeup, once I actually saw the names of people on the films, and of course they were all men back then. And when I looked at films of the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was always makeup created by makeup, makeup. And they were men's names. Mm. I really could put this in, like, I could do this. That could be me. That could be me. I actually left school 15 years old to work on a building site. You can earn £120 a week cleaning this building site. And all I could think was £120 a week. That's like, what, £480 a month. could save that. That will get me to London. Because obviously I know, like, I'm not going to have any financial backing to get me here. It's yeah. going to be a difficult, yeah. difficult st- struggle. So. I always kind of did everything for myself anyway. I was very self-sufficient from a young age. So I was like, yep. In my head, I just went, yep, definitely. It has to be that. And I, honestly, I would be in them cabins. And <laughs> I'm not even like, this is as dramatic as it sounds. And I'm not even that much of a dramatic person. <laughs> but and these, it was these like, these cabins were all the, the the guys like concrete wetsuits. So it was disgusting, honestly. It was the men's toilets. It was, and um. I would be in that cabin and I would be like, had the brush and I'd be like dancing, crying, like thinking I was in like the movie Honey, like, will I ever make <laughs> And I used to think like, I honestly thought I was in that and I, I genuinely would be crying, like hating what I was doing, but just wishing that I could do this. I genuinely had this like deep sense of like knowing that this probably won't happen for someone like me, but there was just this other part of me that just kept me going. The... First time I ever went to Paris and was when I was on this bagpiping journey, it was in 2014, I think July, I was trying to do everything as cost effective as possible. And I, I decided not to stay in Paris for even a night. Uh, so I was going to, I took the bus, the mega bus from London to Paris. I get, I get there and um, what did I do? I think it started raining and I thought, I was like, damn it. All I want is a photo in front of the Eiffel Tower and to pipe. And then move on. I was going to go to Switzerland next, which is just a, a mad, a ridiculous way to travel. Um, and I was in a cafe waiting for the rain to go. And I was in my kilt. And this 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 really lovely girl opposite um, just struck a conversation. She was like, why, why on earth? I'm sorry, are you in a kilt? Long story short, we ended up just chatting loads. She was from Austria, I think, or Germany. Her boyfriend was um, from Paris. And she ended up spending the whole day with me, helping me take photos, helping me carry my stuff. And she was like, look, you can spend the night here in my boyfriend's flat. They literally gave me the keys. Having never met me before, and that kind of trust and level of generosity just was incredible. What got me through it 
in terms of because I, personally I'd, I'd done it so much you know and it's like I did it in the West End for two two years played the part finally and then coming back to do it it did you know from being totally honest it was it was difficult at times but what got yeah. me through it was seeing how moved people were by the, the show you know and when I get my ego out of the way of that and told just to, like told the story like seeing how like people were just in t- floods of tears grown men in their yeah. 50s you know 60s what seven whatever what in floods of tears you know and it was and it was amazing to see that it's the power of music and theater isn't it? yeah the, the power of and also the power of like connection as well like and i think once this is all over all this all this isolation stuff hopefully uh, i just hope that people will value that stuff a lot more it's it's just I just think it's nice to notice and be aware and have empathy and have an understanding, and it so, does make me sad that there was like this the, the thing they done there was two studies one was like Pokemon characters versus like actual animals with kids that were okay. eight eight to ten years yeah, old yeah. all across the UK, and obviously and the results were like they knew the Pokemon characters way way better than like a badger an owl like yeah. really basic things wow. and it's just like it's if you keep losing that I just think. There's got to be something so yeah. if we don't dangerous care, then for like. They won't be here. But then loads of people can make the argument like, well, what does it matter? Why? Literally, why does it matter if my seven-year-old knows what a badger is? I'm like, but why does it not? Like mm-hmm. that isn't that frightening. Imagine growing up not knowing what a badger is. It's just, it's just it like my mind. being kind of in touch and aware and just having an understanding of like the natural planet. of like what's outside your front door <laughs> is only going to lead to good things. A lot of the time, uh, I see melodies, writing a melody or anything. I could write them. For fun, I don't okay. know. I really struggle with lyrics. It kills me. I wish to be this, like. <laughs> honestly, I could l- 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 write melodies for fun. Yeah. I really could, but the. That's just you being and, immersed in music for so long. Maybe I. Just, but then I noticed one recently, which is kind of funny. Like uh, every melodies uh, I write always work on the bagpipe scale uh, for some reason. Ah, cool. It's weird how that happens. I always I work between an, oct- an octave, which doesn't seem a lot, but. It's weird. Hey. I don't. I, I never noticed until somebody picked it. Wow. She's strange. And then so a lot of time I'll I'll write the chorus first, and then mm-hmm. I'll write verses, and then then I'll go and record it just with one verse in the chorus, yeah. but I repeat the verses, and then once I get the recording back, then I'll write the verses, and then I'll go in and do a final vocal. Got ya. When I came here, I saw uh, some very interesting practices and some very interesting labeling of people. Uh, entire populations were consigned to deprivation and disadvantaged Mm -hmm. Uh, and it also meant that they were called consumers, beneficiaries, service users, forgetting that as human beings we are implicitly creative and productive uh, and that we are alongside consumers, we are also citizens and we are also producers and just that problems in our lives don't make us problematic people. Uh, and, and it is therefore about uh, SRGs were back then and even now meant for people who are very distant from the market and from the mainstream society. Yeah. And nonetheless, people who can actually add a huge amount of value to our environment, to our economy and to the social fabric of our society. Mm. There's no reason why not, you know, everybody should be part of an SRG, everybody on, on the whole planet, because there's no reason not to. And it's so beneficial. I think the good thing about revolution is that we adapt and we mould to what we learn. 
So I think we've not nailed everything yet, mm. um, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, so I mean, we just want to keep running events and it's good that, you know, that event spoke to you, you were super Absolutely. excited yeah, and yeah. here on Saturday. Um, so it's about continuing to run events like that. It's, it, I do believe that now as well. Like I, I, like, I found like I didn't want to talk. And I didn't want to share my story. And I didn't want to do anything. And gradually, I was just like, I'm seeing young people around me getting diagnosed with cancer all the time, and I've been finding people writing to me, and it's dead. It's really not, and it's like, you're sort of like want to help them as much as you can, and no matter what there's no body swerving it people what can and will get cancer there's no yeah. avoiding it if somebody can catch it very early like yeah. I was caught yeah, it yeah. then like when I met with Bill Cancer UK and the, the, I met the woman from London and she came up to see me and that's what she said she says you've no idea like how lucky you are she goes this is part of the reason we want to write an article and you'll be she goes obviously we want you to share your story she goes mm. but she goes do you know that the majority of people were diagnosed with uh, your type of cancer between 30 and 40 mm-hmm. are at stage four and I was like you know and she goes you were caught at stage one too very quickly I realised what a great bunch of people they were because they were so welcoming mm-hmm. and I literally sent an email and I inquired about could I come along for training and I was um, responded by yep yeah, come along and it was very detailed come along and join join in and I remember showing up with my stick on a Wednesday night it was dark and cold and I was just had not got a clue about mm-hmm. who anybody was and I was totally made feel welcome. Oh, nice one. Um somebody met me in the car park and the next minute I was a part of this and from that point I met like Helena and stuff. So that was my experience yeah. and literally I, it was very quick and I was in and it's been one of the best things I've done. And um, so I went to the taster session, enjoyed that, played a bit of summer hockey, uh, met Michelle yep. at the taster session and through the summer hockey and then I just thought, well, the next step is to actually join properly. <laughs> and I thought, well, can I do this? Can I really do this? And I thought, what was well, holding you back? Just my own self-doubt. Really? Yeah. After all those years yeah, of playing? Too? Yeah. But I said, because it's difficult, you know, you're transitioning from, you know, playing guys hockey to playing ladies hockey, thinking, is that really on? So the girls at Hillhead have been absolutely brilliant. And I sort of said, yeah, I'll sign up. I'll pay my subs. I'll join go to training and see what happens and yeah they've been brilliant absolutely brilliant from day one yeah. can't can't thank them enough and the sense of achievement that people get mm. when they repair something or even if they come along to a repair cafe work with a volunteer to repair the thing so say for example if it's a lamp and even if they leave and they've not necessarily been directly involved in the fix but they've witnessed it they still leave with a sense of achievement because you know they've kind of made a conscious effort to not throw that thing out and not buy new and you know get involved with something in their local community as well um and uh, i came across repair cafe because i was looking for you know like basically i and i had been like saving up clothes like i just had like a small Mm -hmm. hole in it or something like that and i thought oh i love that shirt i don't want to get rid of it Mm -hmm. um and so yeah when i started seeing the repair cafe uh stuff advertised i was super excited um and but had no idea kind of what to expect so you know going in and and thinking well i don't have the skills i don't have the tools at home what am i going to do and then going into a, a place where everybody's really warm and welcoming you know there's coffee there's soup there's you know <laughs> lovely people with lots of supplies and mm-hmm. you know know-how um and so yeah you know being able to go in and watch somebody repair a hole in my shirt and like figure out how i could do that myself and you know kind of be inspired to do some of that um, and everyone who's doing the exhibition got um, provided with a pervy lunch 
it's like an old day. Yes. Or you heard of Purvy Lunch? Yeah. Purvy Lunch. People get given like a wee lunch to take away on a trip or whatever. And there was like a sandwich, a bag of crisps, obviously a bottle of Iron Brew, yes. and a caramel wafer. And I used my caramel wafer foil to in the badge machine to make a badge. And oh, I wore man. it. And people were like, that's amazing. Where did you get that badge? I love a caramel wafer. And I was like, oh, I just made it on the thing. And then um, I had a meeting with a lady at the GOMA for some of the things that I'd made at the exhibition for another project. And again, while I was at the meeting, showing her the other thing, she was like, oh, but that badge is amazing. We could definitely sell those badges. And that is how the tonics thing started. It's mental. That is mental. So I think that's what's kind of got us to this point is that we get comfortable and then we don't like it so we kind of throw ourselves into the deep end where we need to panic every day to sort of stuff out, do you know There's what I mean? There's been like, so many situations man where it's just been like, just feel realisation like, like we need to deal with this like But here, you said we were going to open that shop, like, <laughs> yeah. we actually need to get enough stuff to put in our shop now, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Why can we not just be content with the 95? No, no, and then the next week, before you know it you're starting in your grand grander's garden building wooden pallets to make a cash desk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's total adventures. That's exactly it. Looking back, you'll just be like, mind that time, mind that other time. I mean, you're like, never going to be like, mind that time we sat in the office for eight hours and <laughs> laughed over, over a spreadsheet. That was a funny spreadsheet. There was nothing to do with us, it was somebody else's spreadsheet. I don't know, I think it is. Like, it's, na- it's natural, I'd say mm-hmm. that. Like, it, most of the things on there, if it's not a real story that I've told in yes. whatever I'm chatting about, it's in relation to like a conversation or how I would sit and talk with my, like my pals yeah. and stuff like that. Um, and I think it kind of went more that way like as, as time went on like uh-huh. the page because I don't know, you realise like people in Glasgow or Scotland or whatever, like first of all, we don't really like talking about mental health or we don't really like showing our emotions or what's mm. wrong with us. And we've, a lot of people have got this hard exterior and I think like if you can reach people on a level where it's relatable then like you can then have the tough conversations or that dialogue and people don't feel as threatened Mm -hmm. either so I feel like don't get me wrong I've got my telephone voice right (laughs) I'm half using it right now Uh, (laughs) at the time my care job that I had I I worked for four hours in the morning Uh and then five hours in the evening because I was helping elderly people in their own homes. So it was like getting them up in the morning, food and, you know, Mm. getting dressed and things. And then the same at night time. So I had all this time, about six hours between my shifts and I thought, I'm going to go and do a (laughs) Munro. That's what I'm like, right, I'll go to to Aldi's. I'll have a coffee, sitting on Instagram for an hour. Oh my goodness, I mean, you're putting this to shame. So my, my second Munro was on my own. I did it completely solo. A wee bit of snow on the ground, just to keep right. it interesting. And did I, you tell him to you were going, though? Yeah, I did. Good. I told my boyfriend. Great. And I went and did this Munro between my shifts. Yeah. That's awesome. And after that, I just got the bug yeah. for, for hill walking. So I did a show up in Aberdeen APA. And it was just it was just sound what you call foley, so um, the creation of sound effects type thing. Do you know oh. what I mean? Yeah, it was named after the guy who I think it was the guy who did all the Alfred Hitchcock films, and he started making up sounds. So like, have I got like a I've not got a jacket or anything. So he would like flap a jacket about and then just put it in over the birds. Nice one. Just to make it seem like it was the birds' feather. Oh, gee. So they, they and, and then mm. any time it's 
not every time, but I'd say about 90% of the time, if it's mm-hmm. raining mm-hmm. outside in the scene, they'll usually just overdub the sound of frying bacon because it sounds like Jeez, it's sort of oh, patter of so rainfall. Cool. So loads of my job is like that. Loads so you're of it just is. constantly going, that sounds like that. That sounds like this. Make and a mental note. So there was a bit where you, they, they put the fire on. They put the fire on, I've got a bag of empty crisps. <laughs> and just like <laughs> rustling them. Do you know what I mean? Love that. And then you just do a wee bit of editing and it sounds like a fire. Uh, nobody ever goes, is that that's, a packet of crisps? Do you know what I mean? Like they, <laughs> no. they just go. <laughs> that, I love that. They it's accept a proper it mind they see it. trick in it. Mm-hmm. Just these connections that you don't make necessarily in everyday life. But exactly. you're, you're like... You're so tuned in. Yeah. To and a lot, a lot of the times, like, it's, well, you see manipulating, but it's almost all manipulating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You're uh-huh. almost always trying, music is always trying to influence you in yes. a certain way. I feel as though I wanted to put it onto social media so that I could connect mm. into the spinal cord injury world uh-huh. and find people who have gone through the same situation as me or needed to find a new form of therapy mm. because nothing else was working for them, which happened to me. Yeah. And I wanted to share it because I, I could see how good it was. But then I was seeing mental health benefits, which was yeah. huge for me. It's what, okay. I, it's what I needed at the time. Being able to bake bread and seeing it, feeling it, being able to eat it. And then having friends say that they want to have some. Mm. And you can share it with them. You can share it with your family. You can share it with your friends. That whole experience is so rewarding and so fulfilling that... It gives you a boost. So the, the, my whole mindset kind of changed. I when I first started, I was into these like flashy transition things, but now I'm more like, yes, make the video look epic. But I want a story behind it, like a solid story that will just make people want want to watch it. Because mm. at this time, you have I've seen so much epic stuff visually. It's just like it's kind of meaningless if it doesn't have a story. It's just okay, like yeah, I, yeah. I, I get bored of this video in like ten seconds. Mm-hmm. Nice shots and whatever. Uh-huh. Like if there's not a story, nothing. Then, mm. but that kind of my just changes over time, and and I'm more like thoughtful about that. How can I make this story but make it look visually like amazing as well? Mm. So that's what I'm slowly going towards. Uh, so the content that I would go for it's like. Yes, it can be travel because I always like travel if it's about a, like an adventurer, but somebody, some human element there that you have maybe some main character and he has, he's telling like some sort of story through traveling. Mm-hmm. Like you're interviewing like all these different people doing podcasts. It's like creating me, creating a visual story about them, interesting yeah. people. I would yeah. love that. It's like I'm slowly trying this year want to get into more like sport, recording all of sports stuff. Nice. So I'm going back to kind of my roots where I started myself with the sports, but now creating stories through sports like could be like an MMA fighter or could be like a mountain biker could be whatever yeah. and just build that sort of because everybody's portfolio. got a story yeah, that's because, worth telling yeah, yeah there is so yeah when I was working in that vintage factory um, I it was just all that denim and I just knew that I wanted to um, do something with mm. denim basically yeah. and I never wanted to start up a brand myself like it'd be quite scary and I think the, the fear for me if I order all this fabric, make all this stuff, and then nobody buys it. So if I'm working with old fabrics, yeah. it's not as much of a risk because it's already had its life. Mm. I'm doing something again, so it's not that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it was, I always just had that thought. I don't know where that came from, yeah, but yeah. that was my first thought. Like, I think the fear from spending like thousands of pounds on loads of fabrics of and then not making any money back from it. And all the years in retail, you know, you see it all come in and then, 
you unpackage it, put it out, and then it goes back to the sort of room, and then it goes to sale. I think seeing that cycle for so many years, I think that was just like in my brain. Didn't realise at the time. I was no. like, no, this isn't. This yeah, isn't we're becoming on. more mindful now. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, this was even before sustainability was like a word that was on people's tongues. Do you know what I mean? I think previously I would have said like, oh, I don't keep traditions alive in Scotland. I'm not really going <laughs> to do with that. It's uh, just Highland Dancer. But yeah. <laughs> Actually, I find it quite important. I think that's like I love it when I go there and everyone's yeah. doing this tradition. I mean, year, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and we're still celebrating it. Like, yeah. I think it's amazing. And for other countries, like, we don't tend to celebrate their traditions if they have any, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But they're all celebrating ours. It makes you feel really proud of being Scottish mm, when you go there. Totally. So it's called Starless and Bible Black by Stan Tracy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on a record called The Jazz Suite. And to me, it's the record that means the most in my life because I feel like, right, okay, this is going to sound a bit ridiculous, but I feel like I had my life before I knew that record and I had oh. my life after and it's just two separated things. Jesus. And it's, yeah, no, honestly, like, it's insane. It's insane how much that record means to me. And actually, it's kind of cute because... I made a wee documentary, like a mini, like a six minute long thing for BBC when I used to do a radio show, kind of guest on a radio show there. And I posted it on Facebook and the son of the man who made the record, who's now sadly passed away, saw it and messaged me. Because one of my friends who's in a band with him tagged him in and he was like, that's amazing. That's so cool. It's just like the way, so for me, in music, I look for emotion, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it's house, techno, Latin music, gospel, whatever it might be, I look for like inner peace kind of emotion. Mm-hmm. And that one is literally that. It makes you feel like every single positive emotion that your brain can okay. produce all in this one instant. And also if you're ever like anxious or sad or whatever you just put it on for me anyway i mean yeah. it might not have the same effect for everyone but guys i'm telling yeah, I mean, you you're selling it big time there if there <laughs> it's is worth, a, it's worth listening to <laughs> there definitely is a song like that out there for everyone it's yeah. just about and this is another thing that fascinates me it's just about dis- discovery it's about music discovery but uh, i forced myself to go back made the shot um came back out away with the film got home processed it <gasps> and that shot, even though I hadn't seen it, I hadn't processed it yet, because this is way before digital cameras, okay. I just knew there was a feeling inside that I had it. And that yeah. feeling I still get to this day, when I, some, very rarely, but when I know that I've got a shot, mm-hmm. and it's that photograph, I think it's the most important photograph to me, mm-hmm. because every time I look at it, it gives me a reason. Just It doesn't matter what you're feeling inside. If there's fear, you just, just do it. And actually, remember when I went in for the audition, I didn't say much before starting and we, we did it and the director was like great great right okay let's try that again just change this or change that or whatever and I was like and so I did it but I didn't speak much in my own accent which was kind of intentional but also there wasn't the chance to really chat before the actual yes. delivery of the audition I feel like Got and then we were chatting so he was like so you know what's what what have you been doing and mm-hmm. I was like well I'm just I've just been doing a show at the you know unicorn it's called lifeboat and he was like you're Scottish. And I was like, aha, aha. He's oh, like, oh, you dancer. Your accent is brilliant. Are yes. you good at acting? I was like, I went to drama school and I've just got a near for it, I suppose. Like, you know, and I, I messed about with my sister and yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, and you watch things in the telly and you pick things up and you imitate or whatever. 
So of course that that I was like, yes, you know, yes, totally like yeah. I was like, well, at least I could. I did myself a good, you know, a good service. I think though, again, that's what makes kind of radio difficult because see, presenting on screen and television, I've definitely developed the nod because you know it's easier for the edit because if somebody edits that with you're going oh yeah that sounds great like <laughs> which is basically my go-to it's a very hard edit because you're like oh jennifer shut up can't believe you said that whereas obviously if you're just um you're just chatting and you're going mm-hmm. and it feels awkward because you know that person's looking at you going you what are you doing losing it like a naughty dog, dog. yeah exactly <laughs> but it does you you do feel start to feel more natural because you can i've got i've Again, I've got one of those stupid faces at Red Expressive, so like oh, my wrinkles in my head are like <laughs> mental because I'm always like raising my eyebrows going, oh yeah, yeah. But that's what I suppose I've tried to develop changing again on radio because mm. you can't see it, there's no visuals. So yeah. you've got to verbally do that without jumping on top of people and talking on top of other people doesn't sound good on radio because obviously you can't hear what either person's saying, but you've got to be able to kind of intertwine so it's not your bit, my bit, your bit. It's a conversation, yes. but it's, it's about timing as well. So that's Yeah, I feel like I need to skill. nail this for the podcast, Jennifer. <laughs> I appreciate, from doing this this year, I appreciate what you're saying. Like, that is a skill. It's just about getting timing right, um, and I do need to continue to work on it, and I think that's good. I like yes. having a challenge. I like having something different. Mm. I think as a presenter, being able to present on radio and TV is important if you look at a lot of the big names that are on some form of radio show as well as mm-hmm. being on screen your Claudia Winkelmans, your Graham Norton's mm-hmm. your uh, look at the heart lineup. it's got people like Emma Bunton it's got Amanda Holden Jamie Beekston like, and Jennifer Reich Jennifer Reich very important yeah. name in there I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Braw and the Brave a podcast about people and their passions join us next time for more insight and inspiration my wonderful guests. Bye for now.